0: Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'll be speaking with Richard Osijo about his book, Masters of Craft, Old Jobs in the New Urban Economy. Thanks for joining us today, Richard.
1: Thank you for having me, Sarah. Nice to be here.
0: Thanks again for joining us. I was wondering if you can tell us more about yourself.
1: Sure. Well, I'm a Associate Professor of Sociology at John Jay College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I got my uh, PhD from CUNY, uh, from the Graduate Center in 2009. I'm a, a native New Yorker and up until October uh, lived in the city my entire life. Now I live a uh, little bit upstate.
0: <laughs> Thank you and welcome again. How did this book come about for you?
1: Well, I was doing research for my dissertation it was a project that I conducted that became my first book that was on conflict and uh, tension over growth policies in gentrifying neighborhoods. And specifically, I was examining issues that had emerged between uh, residents and business owners in uh, an expanding nightlife scene in downtown Manhattan. So as a result, I was frankly, going to a lot of bars um, to uh, conduct my research and to learn a little bit more about nightlife culture, the people who went there, and the people who, who own these businesses. And a part of my research was to attend these community meetings where a very vocal group of residents went to protest these bars, uh, specifically to protest their liquor licenses. And it was a, just a really interesting setting to to observe these tensions in action. And at one particular meeting, uh, this was in 2007, at one of these meetings, there were two items on the agenda for these bars that residents had especially turned out in large numbers to protest against. Uh, One was a bar called Milk and Honey, or at least the owner of Milk and Honey wanted to open up another business but nobody was discussed and the other was a bar called death and company and they're both uh, one was in east village the other in on the lower east side right next to each other really uh, these neighborhoods and they were just so against these bars and anytime the residents were against these bars i always wanted to go and check them out just to see what they were all about and they had all sorts of reasons for not wanting them there which i, I go into in the book i won't go into it now so I went to these bars, maybe a week later, to, to talk to the owners and just to know what they were all about. And I was just kind of blown away as soon as I walked in by what I was observing. They were these high-end, very specialized cocktail bars. And you, they had hidden doors, the inconspicuous facades. They were very dark, candlelit, jazz-playing, sweet aromas and... Uh, weird sounds coming from the bartenders while they were making these drinks in a very precise manner, measuring things very exactly, using ingredients I'd never heard of, making drinks I'd never heard of. And it was just very unusual. And I'd never really experienced it before. And I decided that I was going to get what I needed for my dissertation project, learn more about their, you know, attitudes towards their neighbors and the neighborhood and everything. And also conduct a little side project because I was just fascinated by it. And I learned that these bars in particular were really at the, at the heart of a cocktail revival, cultural movement that was going on in New York city in the U S and in other cities around the world. Uh, They became, they were destinations for people who were really interested in making cocktails in a very, specific way in the the revival of the golden age of the cocktail, which was from around 1870s or so to 1920, up until Prohibition that was being revived. So I kind of started this project, uh, this side project on the cocktail world, and I just kind of followed the cocktail everywhere. So I went to various events and seminars and tastings and competitions, uh, and just really went, and of course, went to all these different Cocktail bars, and related to that, I started conducting research on the liquor industry, which was very connected to to the cocktail world. These bartenders were really interested in using new products to make unique tastes and to make new drinks with new flavor profiles. So they really needed a lot of the new product coming out of the liquor industry, which included the craft distilling industry. So these smaller businesses that had opened up to make these new unusual products uh, for the market, but also for cocktail bartenders to use. So I started working at one of these craft distilleries uh, a bit uh, north of New York City. And it was there that I realized that what I was most interested in was the work that these people were doing. It was the workers themselves who were creating not just these products, but the uh, the meanings and the uh, new symbols that were being attached to these products, symbols of quality, of authenticity, of why the, the way that they make these products is the, quote unquote, the correct or the right or the good way of of making them. And those workers were the the bartenders themselves and the distillers themselves. So then I just shifted the project and really turned it into really a work study and why people choose to do these jobs. Uh, specifically, why do people who have other options for work choose to do these jobs? They were people who had college degrees. They were people who had professional backgrounds. And I just kind of got just fascinated by that general question and larger questions of the direction that work is going in today in today's shifting uh, economy. So I looked for these other cases to study. I didn't want to just study the booze world. So I found these barbershops that I had been familiar with a little bit, uh, these these upscale men's barbershops that had opened up in the city. And I was just interested in the the, the men's grooming industry and fashion industry in general and style. And then I wanted a, a fourth case in somewhere in the food world uh, just because of its popularity and the close parallels that I was seeing with the other jobs that I was studying. Uh, I didn't want to study chefs just because I didn't want to do research in kitchens. They're not very hospitable places. Um, so I had heard about the craft butchery movement, the whole, whole animal uh, nose to tail butchery movement, and uh, decided I was study butchers, and that's how that project uh, evolved.
0: <laughs> Great, thank you. Well, let's get right into the book. I really like how you open the book with a description of Chelsea Market and how that sort of illustrates the concepts of your book. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, Chelsea Market is where the butcher shop that I studied is located, and it's also where you can find all the other jobs and all the other Products and, and services that I that I studied, and it just kind of represented. I felt a a really interesting microcosm for everything that was going on that I had been studying. So Chelsea Market was an old factory. It was the Nabisco factory, in fact. That's where the Oreo cookie was invented, for instance. And its thing was mass production of baked goods. That's what it did. It closed in the mid. 20th century, when basically it wasn't fit to produce at a volume that they required, they moved out to New Jersey to the suburbs. Eventually, they would move even further to find more cheaper land and to find um, cheaper labor. This is just a common deindustrialization story. And the buildings that made up Chelsea, that made up the factory, were more or less abandoned over the several decades. And then you come to the 1990s, where we get this uh, resurgence in interest in the core of cities, of old industrial cities. We find that of reuse start to get become popular. We find um, people who are, who are interested in these old industrial spaces start to get revalorized. And so Chelsea Market got converted into a place for Business, commercial, commercial businesses, and for office space um, upstairs. So they created the concourse in the middle that people could walk through. It kind of like became a, a fancy food court that got themed around uh, industrial motifs and designs and so on. And uh, originally it was a place for wholesale business, but then you get the food revolution, the the boom in interest in all things culinary and the the, the origins and the, the processes that go into making food. And then you start to get the the foodie destination label that it started to get. And the butcher shop that I worked at was definitely a big part of that. Uh, so Chelsea Market to me, it really kind of encapsulated all the different elements of what I was seeing in these different jobs. It had the the cultural aspect uh, shifts in how we classify taste, uh, things that we uh, consider to be of high quality or low quality, right? Or highbrow versus lowbrow. Some of the more uh, lowbrow and common and everyday products uh, that we that we consume, we're starting to become elevated a little bit. So. Uh, buying meat started to shift and not just what kind of, not just buying meat, but what kind of meat you bought started to shift for what was considered to be of a high quality Uh, to the, to the, to the urban, right? The idea that Chelsea market was part of this gentrification process, this investment that was going on in these uh, formerly derelict, uh, dangerous and, and poor neighborhoods, uh, as well as just an interest in uh, cities as uh, destinations and places as destinations for consumption. And then just the economic, just the uh, the idea that, that work was really shifting, that uh, these neighborhoods that were transforming were getting a new type of urbanite who were moving to these neighborhoods in search of certain consumption experiences. Um, and just the idea that work itself was shifting and that uh, people who did have options for where to work uh, wanted to do jobs like the ones that you could do in Chelsea Market, like in a food job or a retail job that was no longer a bad job, but was something that allowed you to pursue a passion or pursue uh, an interest of some sort, while also being in various ways uh, creative and using your using your mind, not just being a a passive retail worker. So um, I started the book with the story of Chelsea Market and all the different ways that it connects to these big major, these major factors, because it was just a perfect microcosm. It just kind of encapsulates all these different forces that are going on throughout society, all within this one place, specific place.
0: Great. Thank you. You start off the book by talking about bartenders and this sort of cultural renaissance around cocktails and the tie to prohibition and the professional art of bartending. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
1: Sure. Well, the bartenders today, the cocktail bartenders today, to them, history is is very important, the history of their what they consider their trade, their craft, and they're Really looking back to this golden age that I mentioned uh, a bit earlier of when bartenders were considered as they claimed to be the skilled tradesmen who had to apprentice, had to memorize hundreds of, of recipes, had to innovate, had to come up with their own recipes, their own ingredients, their own liqueurs. And they held on to these things like trade secrets pretty much. And they were respected for the knowledge that they possessed, for the skills that they possessed. And this had a decline after Prohibition. Prohibition wipes out alcohol sales and production, and these skilled tradesmen couldn't ply their trade. So they fell into a period that they called the Dark Ages, that today's bartenders call the, the Dark Ages. When the bartender became de-skilled, it became de-professionalized, if you will. And became a job that you just kind of did. You just kind of did it, say, because you were interested in pursuing something else more as a career. Your profession path was to uh, become an artist or to become a musician or an actor or something else. You were bartending because you were pursuing something else or you were bartending because that's kind of all you were qualified to do, or it's just something that you fell into. It wasn't something that you took pride in pursuing as a career. And so that idea that the bartender is a respected, noble occupation that requires skill and talent is what they've really revived and turned into their own form of, of professionalizing and professionalization.
0: Great. Thank you. You move into a discussion of distilleries, and your book has lots of social contrasts. But here, one of the interesting social contrasts was in this idea of the hillbilly distillery versus what distilleries are today. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, and that was really interesting because uh, when we talk about the the revival of these different occupations, uh, the distilling, I mean, what were the popular images that they had to really go on. It was most recently, it's the idea of the, you know, the hillbilly in the mountain making moonshine, right? Typically a, a poor, uh, at best working class pursuit um, or activity that these folks like in Appalachia and so on engage in to, to try to earn some kind of living. And that's one of the, the big prevailing images, I guess, that we have of, distilling because before prohibition distillers were pretty ubiquitous uh every farm more or less would have had a a still and they would have distilled their products uh that they didn't bring to market or or weren't going to bring to market and just sell sell the booze and that was a really lucrative way for them to to supplement their their business then that ends during prohibition and you get uh, again, this decline in in distilling in the U.S. it gets concentrated in uh, a few large corporations, more or less. And then once this start, once this craft starts to come back, the only real comparison then is with the the illicit underground uh, distillers, who are these you know l- low income, uh, mostly poor rural folks. Uh, but the what was interesting is that a lot of the craft distillers they kind of embrace this this kind of outlawish uh, image or, or quality to distilling. It's always had this kind of uh, underground, uh, against the law or outside the law kind of vibe to it. And while what they're doing now is very well funded and it's very well branded and marketed and everything done is done very. Uh, deliberately with a particular goal in mind, in many ways they've they've kind of embraced that that outlaw sensibility that has been attached to distilling all these years, even though what they're doing is functionally very similar, but in terms of an enterprise and in terms of something that is uh, a, a cultural project is remarkably uh, unique from from what these folks have been doing and are still doing.
0: Great, thank you. Um, In your discussion of barbershops, you have a really interesting discussion of doing masculinity as well as how barbershops are a place that barbers can sort of teach adult skills to their customers. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
1: Yes, absolutely. So the the barbershops were fascinating because they were really opened, again, very deliberately by folks who wanted to create a more traditional masculine space. Uh, for men, particularly urban professional men, who had to achieve a certain style and a certain look for their jobs or for their everyday lives. But wanted them to be able to do that, to achieve this look without compromising their masculinity. There weren't really any uh, typical barbershops, classic barbershops, where they could do that. If they wanted to get that, achieve that look and get that high-end service... They had to go to the, the women's salons, and that's a problem because, you know, that's where your your masculinity is is compromised. That's where you can't, you know, be a man, so to say. So they really kind of created these hybrid businesses that combine those different elements: the high end uh, service and bodywork with the more traditional, typical masculine space, the masculine environment, and for the barbers they discovered that a lot of their clients they felt had to be taught what this actually meant, what style meant, what being a man meant, what being an adult meant. And so I really saw a lot of cases where the barbers were really taking it upon themselves to, to really teach them and show them how to be comfortable in their own bodies. Uh, specifically through their hair, but sometimes in other ways too, such as, you know, in terms of their facial hair or in terms of their clothing or something like that. And they really just tried to teach them to be to be, yeah, again, comfortable in their own skin, to be comfortable being men. And what was fascinating was that they were they were doing it through a lot of what we consider to be feminine work. Through a lot of high touch, high personal body work, obviously, that goes on with any barbership really, but was really accentuated here because it was so uh, stylized and the techniques they used were just so uh, in-depth and, and detailed, um, but also socially in terms of how they were talking to them about what they should be doing with their hair, how they should be carrying themselves and, and how they should be uh, presenting themselves in front of people. So there was this this really interesting masculinity project that was uh, going on. This almost like this caring masculinity that they were really demonstrating for their clients uh, within this space.
0: Great. Thank you. In your discussion of the butcheries, one of the interesting aspects is this idea of good taste as well as the cultural performance of being a foodie. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
1: Yeah. For the butchers, I noticed how really Important it was for them, because they were selling the whole animal they had this economic uh, reality really, this financial reality that they had to sell the whole animal in order to make a profit. but beyond that, they all had this this idea, this philosophy that that we should be consuming the whole animal that that is one of the ways to be an ethical consumer is to to base be based on this principle of not wasting anything. And combined, you could see that they were starting to uh, really, really shift our understanding of taste and what is considered to be good meat. Um, And there were, as a result, you're going to get certain very uh, highly regarded products that are going to be, that are going to decline a little bit in status. And part of that, again, is the, the financial incentive. There's Only, you know, so many, only so much filet mignon you can get out of a cow. So they're going to run out. And if they run out, then they have to sell something else. So there is that impetus there. But also there's the idea that, well, the filet mignon is really not that good of a cut of meat anyway. It simply became popular because it's relatively easy to consume and to cook. It's relatively tasteless, and it you know doesn't have a, a ton of flavor, um, and it's it's just very simple to prepare. So they started shifting their attention to other cuts of meat on the animal, which, again, they have to sell, but also because they think that these cuts of meat have been ignored and thrown away, but they have a remarkable mar- remarkable amount of flavor. They're more versatile when it comes to preparing certain dishes, and they started to try to influence their customers to think about taste in this way, to think about it less as something that you should like, right? A cut of meat that you should like. Why? Because that's just the way it's always been. Um, And you should like a cut of meat for other reasons, because you should be consuming other parts of the animal and you should not just do it because it's ethical, but you should do it because, Hey, it actually tastes a whole lot better. So it was there that I really noticed this uh, this reconfiguration of uh, taste and and reclassifying uh, material objects and products uh, from how they've typically been been understood.
0: Great, thank you. So the first half of your book is sort of going through each of these jobs individually, and then the second half is sort of this big picture analysis. And one of the first big pictures that you come to is this idea of what is a cool job and as well as the search for meaning um, among the workers who do these jobs, but also the privilege that they have that allows them to hold these jobs. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, and that goes back to what I was, what I originally found really interesting about these folks who were who were pursuing these jobs, and, and that is that they have to be doing them that they had other options for work because they usually went to college or they had some other kind of professional experience in another industry. And sometimes that wasn't very much experience, but still they they had some kind of entry-level type of position in a more, you know, traditional firm for somebody of their uh, background. So they, they didn't have to be doing it. So I, that was like my puzzle was, you know, why are they doing it? <laughs> Where are they pursuing these these jobs. And yeah, they all had the privilege to pursue them because they could always fall back on something else, whether it be their, their college degree or the networks that they had established uh, professionally uh, at that point. And now I really learned that that the reason why they wanted to pursue them, well first, like you say, with the so called I guess gentrification of these jobs, they didn't want to just pursue any old version of them and they wouldn't have pursued any old version of them. They didn't want to be the the barber at the neighborhood barbershop. They wanted to be the barber at the, the cool shop that was going to challenge them. That was going to lead them to really enhance their barbering skills or learn very uh, enhanced and, and advanced barbering skills and share their knowledge and their sense of, of style Uh, with these folks. So they looked for these more high-end jobs when they realized that they were going to uh, pursue their passions. And that was a big part of it because they all had this idea that work should be something that is meaningful, that it should be something that is fulfilling, more like a vocation than a job. So if we think of people pursuing their interests in their spare time or in their free time on weekends or at nights or something like that, these folks were not interested in that. They were interested in turning their interests and their passions into some sort of uh, viable career. And they didn't necessarily see that in the more conventional paths that uh, people take, say, when they're in college or when they're done with college. So they just kind of took the plunge, really, or they were kind of drifting around and weren't entirely sure what exactly they were going to be doing. And they found these jobs in in different ways through these different uh, pathways and different networks that they had established and decided to really take that risk. Uh, to enter into them and try to turn these these jobs into careers and the fact that they did it in these more high end I- elite versions of these jobs, not in the the more common versions of these jobs that we see, is really what 's allowed them to experience them as something that is not a form of downward social mobility for people of their backgrounds and of their their social class standing, because it's not really seen that way. Uh, it, it these jobs really allow them to to use their minds, to use their uh, creativity, uh, in addition to being able to use their their bodies and use their hands, uh, while also being social and sharing their knowledge and ideas and their skills with with a public, with other people. So it's really the combination of those aspects of what these jobs are all about, that one really leads to this bifurcation or gentrification of these industries and also leads these workers to see them as possible, possibly viable uh, career paths that they could take. And again, you know, while while they're seen as, as cool, I kind of expected also to find that they pursued them because they thought they were cool. And I didn't really find that. I I figured they would, when I started out, that they would be just kind of having fun and doing this out of some sort of hipster's sense of irony. Like, oh, look look at me doing this blue-collar job kind of thing, wearing my little hat and my suspenders or whatever. Uh, But I didn't see that at all. I, I really saw that other explanation that they were pursuing something that um, they felt that they should be pursuing, which was their interests and what made them uh, feel fulfilled and what gave them some kind of meaning in the work that they do. Um, Those by far were the biggest motivators in the context of being in in an economy that they didn't necessarily see themselves uh, fitting into and being able to achieve this sense of fulfillment that they do from doing these more unconventional types of jobs.
0: Another sort of uh, big picture of your book is this idea of the science and art um, behind all of these jobs. Um, And one of the interesting examples you use is with the butchery and the importance of knives as well as cutting. And so I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, they all talked about how people often say to them, like, oh, you guys are artists, you're... Look out, look at you, look at what you do, the artistry of what you do. And they always disavowed that, you know, specific term that they are artists, but they all recognize that there is an art to what they do, the art of, as they often called it, and as I called it in the book. And again, while they are being creative and that there is creativity that enters into it, there's also this recognition of and respect for the science behind what they do, which really limits what they can do, and they all acknowledge that and they and they respect it. So, uh, whether it's the flavor profiles of certain spirits, or whether it's the the chemical combustion process that goes on with distilling or whether it's human anatomy and somebody's hair or whether it's just animals and what nature has given us uh, with them, they're they're constrained by what they can do with that. On top of that, you have people who limit what they can do as well uh, in terms of their own taste and what they want out of them. So they recognize all of these limits, and, but they really uh, balance it with uh, creativity that also has certain limits. Uh, they work within these you know, these, these templates really, uh, each one has a certain template, whether it be a recipe or whether it be a certain style form, stylistic form that comes with a haircut, or again, whether it be something like the anatomy of an animal and they kind of find little seams and creases where they could, uh, you know, find something new out of that and whether they can, and where they can innovate and a big part of this learning how to, to innovate and to be creative is to to really master the the embodied knowledge that that comes from uh, being a professional. So, a lot of that has to do with learning how to wield tools. And yeah, there's with the barbers and the butchers, obviously you know, you're dealing with tools that can be very harmful. Um, you know, knives, you know, sharp sharp objects and I think, are you referring to the part and point in the book where I cut my finger?
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Yeah, I figured you were. Um, so I was learning how to, uh, that was to slice a cut of meat, a bottom round for making beef jerky. Again, you have to use the whole animal, and this is a really excellent way to use the whole animal. It's not a very popular cut you slice it up it, it makes really good beef jerky you can really upsell that beef jerky and uh make good profit from it um and it, it it sounds like such a rote task just slicing very very thin cuts of meat um and it's not but it's not just the the physical part it was always impressed on me to think about the the possible waste that your creating as you're slicing this meat because again one of the principles is to try to use as much of the animal as possible so you're slicing this meat thinking you got to do it thin not just because that's best to make jerky out of jerky is easier made when it's thin um, but also because you're potentially wasting this product right waste this animal um, which is one bad for the bottom line, but it's also not adhering to the principles upon which this business exists. So I have all these ideas in my mind as I'm trying to slice this thing. Um, and, you know, it's easy to forget about one of them. And I forgot one of the technical aspects of it, which is always know where your other hand is. Um, so that didn't work out well. I, so I sliced off a solid chunk of my my right pinky finger while i was doing that um and i was just and that was just me being a novice uh and <laughs> it being one of my first times doing this slicing bottom round for beef jerky but even professionals get to uh points where they screw up you know where they're they're off their their internal clock is off or their sense of where they are in space is a little bit off. So your your feet being a little bit too far apart and all of a sudden you stab yourself in the leg or you're using a pair of scissors that is just a half inch longer. And all of a sudden you cut a guy's ear or something like that. So it really is uh, very much about having your, your mind and body being in sync and in a, in a very particular rhythm with each other, which you're going to get over time. You're going to, if you focus on it and you concentrate on it, you uh, attune your body to being able to uh, to accomplish these tasks with confidence and uh, consistency.
0: Great. Thank you. One of the um, aspects I hadn't thought about before reading your book is this idea of how these workers teach customers about um, this culture around these food products and drinks. And so I was wondering if you could tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, that was a really important finding. That was something that I I learned pretty early on was how important it was to these workers to to teach their customers and clients about what they do, really, and about their own taste to educate them or, as some of them put it, to train them uh, to think about taste and style differently so that when they go into these businesses, they are more informed. They're more informed about what they're going to order. They're more informed about what they like, and they could explain why they like it and what makes it good and what makes it high quality. So for these workers, it was it was a really important part of the job. It wasn't just cutting the meat or making drinks, but explaining why you're cutting this meat, why it's good, why you're making these drinks, why it's good, what's its history, why did I do this instead of that, why what did that do to the final product and why the whole thing is better than going to any other kind of bar. This was like a mission. So it was really kind of a big part of their jobs. And I start that chapter with uh, a vignette from the butcher shop. And this happened all the time that somebody would come in and they would look around and there were just so many products in this display case, just like there were so many products behind the bar. Um, and, and so many uh, unusual tools at the barber stand at the barber station that they would inevitably a customer would ask about it. And so they would often ask about at the butcher shop I worked at. They would often ask about the the chickens um, because they look like chickens. Everyone's seen a chicken, uh, but they labeled it red cockerel, and everyone would be like, "Oh, what's what's a red cockerel? What is that?" And that would. That was the cue, and that was done intentionally. That was the cue to get the worker to be able to start that process of teaching, of educating. So they got to explain, oh, well, that's a, our type of chicken that we sell. We think it's the best. Here's why it's the best, because it's very tall and it has uh, longer legs. You're going to get more dark meat, so it's really good for making soups. It's good for making roasts. And with that, they they've communicated something. They've communicated variety within, you know, a chicken's a chicken, it is a chicken. But no, it's not. There's, there's differences in chickens, and here's why this chicken's really good and why you should uh, get it if this is what you're interested in. And it was, it was more than just a conversation starter. Uh, these were little subtle hints and clues to, one, to alert customers and clients that something different is going on here. And two, to give these workers the opportunity to to do that that teaching uh, process that they see as like a major mission of what these businesses are all about. And I saw that with each of these each of these jobs in in subtle ways that they would try to get to their consumers somehow and do the best they could to even subtly try to teach them a little bit about what they were uh, all about, what these businesses were all about.
0: Great, thank you. So another big picture from this book is this idea of the technical skills behind these jobs, as well as the cultural repertoire that the workers have to bring to it. Another interesting sociological aspect that I found was this idea of community. So the folks that work together, they, you know, try to enhance each other's skills. So I was hoping you could tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, this was a really important chapter when I was conceiving it, because when you think of these jobs you sometimes just think of the technical part of it like, oh, butchers cut meat, barbers cut hair, distillers make booze, and bartenders serve drinks. And that was an important aspect of doing these jobs. You had to know these technical skills, and in, and in each case, they were they required you know, a broader set of technical skills. You had to know more advanced techniques in order to, to do them. And that was all very important, but I noticed that... It wasn't just people who had technical skills who were able to, to get these jobs and to, uh, to succeed in them. But you had to have these other repertoires in your arsenal. You had to be able to very convincingly and, and effectively and efficiently perform the, the more cultural aspects of the work. So sure, that included the technical side, which included this sense of craft and this this understanding of, like I mentioned before, innovating on certain templates. You had to kind of understand that. You had to perform that. That was all very important. But it was also the the cultural understanding behind what makes these products, services, jobs, and businesses special, more special than the more common versions of them. And that's where I started to see these workers uh, one where I started to see them really learn uh, from each other within these environments, it was they were designed and really intended to be not just learning spaces for for consumers but also for the workers themselves to to build from the sets of knowledge and skills that they were uh, cultivating um, but it's also where i I learned that if these jobs are as much cultural performances as they are just doing certain physical tasks, then they become something that people cannot do because of their own social and cultural backgrounds. Uh, And that's where I started to really realize where this sense of really where this sense of inequality comes into play in jobs like these. Um, If you don't have the, The cultural reference points say that these businesses are based on Uh, many put it in terms of the aesthetics of it. If you don't look like us and sound like us, then you're not going to be able to do it. You're not going to be able to really uh, communicate the the knowledge and the culture that these businesses are all based on, or at least you're not going to be able to do it very effectively, no matter how good you are at the more technical side of things. So... It's really in that chapter where I wanted to kind of really communicate that and, uh, you know, convey some of the some of the issues that we see in a lot of these jobs and, and the revival of uh, a lot of these traditionally low-status blue-collar jobs.
0: Great. Thank you. So to sort of wrap up your book, at the end here, you talk about the rise of these new elite jobs as well as the sort of shift in the understanding of taste and consumption, uh, especially, you know, settled into this idea of, how cities are gentrified and what's becoming a good job in the new economy. So I was wondering if you could sort of give us a big picture here.
1: Yeah, I mean, these jobs wouldn't exist if there wasn't a consumer base or and a market for them. If there wasn't a group of people who had some kind of interest in, or at least I should say, a, a resistance towards or antipathy towards mass production, or just wanting to to see. Authentic products, right? Quote unquote, authentic products, and to learn more about the origins of what the, what they're consuming, and I think cities have become you know real repositories for these forms of consumption and these lifestyles. Um, at the same time, as they become you know places where one where where you know good jobs have proliferated, and what is a a a, a good job well you know a good job is one that has traditional criteria like pay and benefits and and so on um but also some other criteria like whether a job is actually stable or whether a job is going to give a worker autonomy over their work or whether a job is going to be uh flexible or something like that and in in creating you know good jobs of course you know we also have bad jobs and bad jobs are going to be the ones that aren't necessarily stable, that aren't really flexible, that don't give you autonomy, that don't allow you to be creative at the same time as they usually don't pay you very much um, and they don't really give you uh, benefits. So when we have far more bad jobs, and usually these jobs are in service or they're in retail or something like that, but With an interest in these forms of consumption, of knowing about the origins of products, of having products that are so-called authentic and that are of a high quality, that are artisanal, that are handmade and all this stuff. It really creates the opportunity to turn some of these so-called bad jobs uh, into good ones by really kind of reinventing them around these performed cultural repertoires. Right, that that require a certain amount of knowledge, that uh, require a certain amount of skills, and that require you to be able to communicate this knowledge and these skills to uh, to people. So these these jobs really kind of show the potential for for bad jobs to not just be felt as good, but to actually be good jobs. For these jobs to get uh, higher status, to uh, be seen as something that is a worthwhile pursuit to get acknowledged for being a an influencer of culture, to be a shaper of of taste, and I think that these jobs do hold that potential. But again, if the successful performance of these jobs are in part based on uh, cultural aspects and social aspects, then you're going to get to a point where you're excluding large groups of people. So we have to be, you know, uh, a little cautious to say that these are uh, you know, viable paths for lots of different people like mass production jobs used to be. Um because there's there's a lot of there are a lot of obstacles that are that are in the way, but I think we're seeing for certain segments of the population in in cities mostly Uh, these have become good jobs in a place where we would be unlikely to really see them. We normally think of good jobs today as being knowledge-based, technology-based, dealing with ideas or dealing with high-end services. Uh, These are not what we normally think about, but they've really entered into that conversation for, uh, again, just a select segment of the population. So.
0: Great. Thank you so much again for being here today. I was wondering if you could tell us what you're working on now.
1: Yeah, I've uh, started a new project uh, for the last few months or so. Uh, I mentioned in the beginning that I I moved a bit north of the city and upstate New York into the the mid-Hudson Valley. And the Hudson Valley is a fascinating place uh, for not just its its history, but today it's starting to uh, really become revived and uh, the source of the revival in many cases is people who are leaving New York City Um, mostly because of how unaffordable that it's becoming and as mostly still young people are uh, reaching a point where they want to settle down and and start a family and have a house and all that stuff you know they're fine you know the schools for their kids and have a certain life for their family and for their kids They're realizing that they're not able to do it in New York City, but there are some affordable and good, safe, interesting, historic places just north or just west or just east or just south of the city that they could go to. And uh, I'm studying a particular place, a city called Newburgh, uh, which is along the Hudson River, about 60 miles north of New York City, that is experiencing this transformation. And it really kind of uh, combines my two books, uh, this last one and my first one, Um, I mentioned the first one was about conflicts over growth policies in uh, gentrifying neighborhoods. And then obviously the second one is about these uh, old craft-based jobs that are uh, becoming cool. And really at the heart of Newburgh's uh, revitalization is this creative economy, these creative jobs, craft jobs, light manufacturing uh, also artists, uh, people like uh, graphic designers who are involved in the digital economy in some way, makers uh, who are moving to Newburgh because it's, it's very affordable. Um, it had seen a very, very steep decline over the final decades of the 20th century. And now a lot of its revival is coming from this uh, creative craft-based sector that I looked at in New York City. And a lot of them are people who were priced out of New York city or just saw the writing on the wall and decided they were going to start up their business or just make their, make their living up there in, in Newburgh. So it looks at uh, how, how small cities are growing and surviving and uh, reacting to life in today's uh, new economy. Uh, So that's the direction that, that, uh, that that project is going in now
0: great thank you again so much for being here and thank you to our listeners
1: Oh, thanks for having me Sarah I appreciate it thank you